Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Chamber Foundation's Path Forward, uh, Navigating the Return to Work. If you've just discovered the series, we're delighted to have you. We have been exploring different facets of this important conversation. We like to say that we'll return to work when the public health officials tell us it's safe to do so. But in the meantime, we can help the business community prepare for that eventuality. Over the past few weeks, we've heard from scientists, we've heard from transportation experts, we've heard from childcare experts, really trying to understand each piece of return to work from testing and equipment on down. And we're really excited today and interested to learn more from our guests as we turn the conversation to the psychological realm of consumer attitudes. You know, when we talk about return to work, it's not just work we're returning to, it's life. Because places of business are where we celebrate, they're where we get married, it's there where we have reunions and worship, in addition to shop and have fun. And so as we think about returning to work, thinking about about when and how the public will come to feel safe, both working, but also in producing demand is a really important component of it. So we're gonna explore not only when the public will feel safe to go back to work, and not only will the public feel safe creating demand for some of these businesses and services, but also when they'll feel economically secure enough again to create a resurgence in demand, which we will need to really drive the economy back up. We also are concerned about the kind of inner drive for entrepreneurship. What does this do to the risk profile of a generation of people? And how do we make sure that the next generation of business leaders feel confident in their ability to create and produce? They say that past is prologue. And as we try to figure out what the future looks like, we should start with what we already know about human nature and also trends in behavior. Deep-seated attitudes and motivations might provide some insights into how long the recovery phase will last, what barriers and challenges might look like, and most importantly, why we should feel optimistic that human ingenuity, industriousness, and resilience will win the day. To help us guide us through this conversation, we have some very smart guests with us today. First, Dr. Joshua Ackerman who is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Ackerman's research focuses on interpersonal cognition, how and why people think, prefer, choose, and act because of one another. We also have Kelsey Robinson, a partner with McKinsey. Her work focuses on driving global sales performance by drawing on her extensive experience in digital marketing, customer relationship management, and customer analytics. We're also very pleased to welcome Rich Tao, co-founder and president of Engages. Rick helps companies and organizations discover what their target audiences are thinking and what will persuade them. We're looking forward to hearing each of these perspectives on consumer attitudes in the time of the coronavirus. We will take audience questions throughout and then I'll present them to the panelists at the end. But let's turn first today to Dr. Joshua Ackerman. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Suzanne. Absolutely. Earlier this month, BBC uh, published an article claiming that the fear of coronavirus is already changing our psychology. Do you think that's really happening? I think that's a good question. I think change is somewhat uh, is a bit of a strong word, but it's certainly the case that uh, coronavirus is triggering parts of our psychology uh, in ways that uh, don't normally characterize our, our everyday lives. Um, and I think this is to be expected. Uh, it turns out that infectious disease has likely been uh, one of the biggest killers in human history. So it makes sense that we'd have a psychology that helps us 
to some extent, navigate uh, the, the the problems and the the, the solutions to an infectious disease. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think there are these really large emotional and cognitive consequences of dealing with this type of threat. I mean, there's the obvious ones, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's uncertainty, um, but there's also a number of influences on the kinds of decisions that we make and the ways we think that I think are a little bit uh, less expected. Um, a lot of those are captured under the, the rubric of what's been talked about, I think, in that article, actually, uh, under a heading called the behavioral immune system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is what is the behavioral immune system? What does that mean? And how, how should we think about it as business leaders? How should we think about a behavioral immune system as we think about getting back to work? Yeah. So the behavioral immune system is... It, in a sense, it's an idea, and it's an idea that relates to the immune system that we're probably more familiar with. So the physiological immune system, which is this set of bodily processes that help us essentially navigate infectious disease once we become infected. So in that sense, it's reactive. The behavioral immune system is a set of psychological uh, processes that happen in the mind, and they're really designed through the course of our evolutionary history to be proactive. That is, they kick into gear when we become concerned that there might be some type of disease threat in our environment, and they help us to essentially um, not put ourselves into situations where we might become sick. And those processes that we have can be effective. Uh, so for instance, people, uh, classic ideas are people react with disgust when they see signs of illness in other people or fear and anxiety. And those emotions keep us away from those people who might be sick. Uh, the downside of this is that uh, to, when people try to detect whether or not somebody else is sick or whether a situation is dangerous, they're not perfect at it. In fact, they're not always even very great at it. Uh, and because of that, it can create these different kinds of biases uh, where people uh, look like they're engaging in more extreme ways, right? So they can um, overreact, uh, so become more fearful, more avoidant. You see things like increased prejudices towards certain groups of people who are associated with disease. And those kinds of reactions have a lot of implications, I think, for um, how consumers are, are likely to behave in situations where they are surrounded by other people who themselves may be sources of disease threat. Uh, and so, yeah, so paying attention to what those reactions are, I think, is, uh, is, is important and useful. And actually trying to understand how to effectively manage them is, is also a really interesting question, uh, because I think it's not the case that we just want to reduce them as much as possible. They, they do have a positive impact on, you know, keeping people from getting sick. But they also lead people to, for instance, we have uh, a variety of studies showing that when people are actively concerned about disease, they prefer certain types of consumer products and they really try to avoid other types of consumer products. Uh, and so that has implications for what consumers are actively going to be doing in the marketplace. That's so interesting. And so you're talking about how we're wired to avoid risk, you know, as, as human beings. And yet, it seems like when this was first coming about, when we were first starting to learn about the seriousness of this threat, it took a while for people to really get there and to get it. Why is that? I think that's a really in intriguing question. And I think a lot of it stems from the fact that, although I've been just talking about this idea of a behavioral immune system, this psychology of disease, um, we don't really have a psychology of pandemics. And that's because uh, pandemics have been pretty rare throughout human history. Uh, and not only 
that, we don't even have a great understanding, or it's been maybe you know a little over 100 years since we've developed a good understanding of something like germ theory. And so the average person might have a difficult time identifying uh, where the threat is that, that exists out there. Yeah. Um, and because of that, that can create a number of these um, uncertainties that people have. And you might see lags and how quickly people are, are likely to respond because what we don't see with coronavirus in most places is we aren't getting the um, interpersonal information like, oh, that person looks really sick. Instead, we have this threat uh, that exists that can be spread even though a person looks completely normal. And because of that, it takes a while for people to really start ramping up their um, their their sort of fear-based responses to it. So, so that's so interesting because it, it's also very logical, right, that it takes yeah. you a while to adjust to a new normal in a lot of ways. Um, so what advice do you have for uh, businesses trying to help people adjust to a new normal of coming back? What are the types of ways we could appeal to a consumer psychology or a worker psychology and make them feel safe? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... This is going to be a very tough situation, honestly, um, because the the solutions are not they're not that present yet, right? We don't have the clarity uh, of solutions that we would like to have, and that's is a that is a big deal when it comes to how people react to threats. People like to feel in control, and they like to uh, feel essentially that they're more clear or certain on what the possible implications of things are. And so, because of that, I think that employers and and um, and business owners can help to uh, mitigate the anxieties that people have by doing a number of the things that we already see, for instance, maybe reducing the number of customers in, a, in, a, um, in, an, in a, an actual store setting, um, providing other types of solutions like enforcing maybe mask use and that and so on. But really the point there is not just to do the behaviors, but to communicate to consumers why those are helpful in order to help reduce those, uh, those anxieties. And then when it comes to something like employees themselves, um, again, because we don't have the real tangible solutions like vaccines uh, for this particular uh, virus, um, it's really managing the anxieties rather than managing the problem that that can help. And so people talk about many different ways of doing this, but a, lot, a big thread that underlies those um, involves activities that um, sometimes go by you know, terms like mindfulness or self-distancing. Those kinds of activities have a good evidence base that suggests that um, employers can actually encourage employees to engage in these behaviors in order to reduce the amount of anxiety that they're actually feeling. When you think about how we're wired, we talked about adjusting to the new normal of a pandemic and a stay at home, then adjusting perhaps to a new normal of going back. What's the psychological impact if the government were to have a major response again and send people home again, say in the fall or another time? What do you anticipate would be yeah. the psychological reaction to that? I think that what we're likely to see is um, is exaggerated responding on the part of uh, individuals and consumers. Um, now, that really does depend on expectations. So if uh, a particular individual expects that there's likely to be another outbreak, let's say in the fall, then their reactions are going to follow along with those expectations and they're going to understand if there needs to be like a return to stay at home. Somebody who doesn't have that same expectation is likely to, re likely to react in a very different way because expectations color uh, much of our psychology. Uh, I think Unfortunately, regardless of what happens in the fall, we are likely to see pretty extreme responses because it may be that there is another spike in cases and that's going to lead to increased 
restrictions and regulations. But alternately, there are certain areas of the country where there's likely to not be a spike in case. And I think, unfortunately, that's also going to lead to exaggerated responding on the part of consumers uh, such that people may start to say, hey, we've really overreacted, when in fact, not having a spike in cases is, is evidence that things are actually, that these, these techniques are actually working. Okay, well, while we wait to get him back, maybe I'll bring uh, Kelsey Robinson in. Kelsey, thank you so much for being with us. I know McKinsey's doing a lot of work on global consumer trends. And tell us, what do you, how do you think consumers are reacting to this pandemic? Yeah, thanks for having me, Suzanne. So we have been tracking U.S. consumer, we call it consumer sentiment since mid-March, so we're about the seventh week. Um, so we have a great longitudinal view, and we really think this is a generation-shaping event. And it's going to change the way consumers behave, not just now, but probably for years to come. Um, and so a few of the trends we're seeing right now to highlight three things. Uh, first of all, a tremendous amount of uncertainty, right? I think Josh actually just started to hit on some of that. Um, you know, So, of course, the top of the list when you ask Americans in our research what they're worried about, it is, you know, around health, public safety, all of those things. But there's, you know, over 90% of Americans actually believe this could take anywhere but two months and potentially, you know, more than a year to actually have their routines, quote unquote, return to normal, whatever that might be. So first theme would be a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And to Josh's point, when you have uncertainty, it colors behavior, impacts the way you go about your day-to-day, -day, even when we are able to be together again, right? The second theme is linked to that, uh, a real link, uh, a real impact to income and then spend intent. So in our kind of latest piece of research just from this past week, almost 40% of Americans saying they've had a negative impact to their household income over the last two weeks. And about half of Americans saying as a result of that, they're having to really cut back they're spending and be careful about where they put their dollars and how they think about their household. And then I'd say the third trend we're really seeing is an acceleration of shifts to online to digital behaviors. And, you know, that's the big question is what of these shifts that we're seeing are necessities for now versus things that we might actually see stick uh, that might not have happened, right, uh, in this kind of accelerated way if we hadn't been in the situation. There's so many places I want to go from here. Um, one is there's a lot of reporting and a lot of thinking about the downsides of all of this, right? But do you see any bright spots? Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple bright spots. Uh, I'd say the most primary one is Americans are actually pretty optimistic. So we're doing this research across 40 countries now across the globe. So and consistently so we can compare countries. And while it's not as high as we'd like, 36% of Americans actually believe the economy will rebound relatively quickly. Uh, now that's, you know, in contrast to the, the spend intent and the household income impacts they're having, but there is some, that's one bright spot. Uh, second, you know, the acceleration of some of these digital and virtual uh, products and services is also potentially a bright spot too. So that's everything, a 40% increase in online streaming to using professional VC for the first time. Um, to, you know, we've seen some of the omni-channel offerings, like the ability to get product without having to come in close contact, like buy a line, pick up a store, or buy. Those behaviors have really accelerated up to 30% of Americans using them more and using them as a way to get products and goods that they need. Um, maybe, you know, two last thoughts on not, you know, silver, not silver linings, but potentially bright spots. Uh, one is there is an interesting shift in how Americans are spending their time. So there's a lot of time spent, you know, cooking, home improvement. <laughs> um, and we actually had about almost 20% of people saying they're spending more time outdoors. And so we do see that, and especially if you look at China as an example, that there might, you know, there's a path here towards a pickup in 
expanded. I'm glad to hear that there are bright spots, you know, and I, and, and I know that you've also been studying this globally and you've seen optimism um, pick up in China. You've seen optimism pick up, uh, I think, in Germany. Um, wh- what do you see happening around the globe? I think even in India. Um, but tell, tell me what you're seeing globally. Yeah. So if you look at China, they have had an increase, as one example, they've had an increase in optimism as they've entered the early days of recovery. So when we did a piece of research in China and talked to uh, the Chinese uh, consumers in late February, about 43% of them were optimistic. And then look at that as of last week, that's up to 2%. So you see a really notable, almost 10 percentage point increase in terms of optimism there. Um and we're also seeing in China some specific categories start to emerge with a little bit more demand, right? So some things that would be discretionary, actually, things like makeup and skincare and, you know, some product categories that were not necessarily getting a lot of spend when the pandemic was or COVID was at its height in China. Um, interestingly, European countries are much less often. So as a whole, they're much less often. So whether it's Germany or Italy or the UK, and, you know, I think we have a collection now of about six in Europe, they're arranging more in the 10 to 25 percent of optimism, kind of regardless of where they are. And so what's interesting globally is there's definitely a correlation between optimism and how closely people manage their money and where they spend. Um, but also, um, but there's also, you know, clarity that region by region, there's some regional specifics in terms of how you know, optimistic population as overall. Uh, and when you look at Americans in all of that context, they're a little more optimistic than you might expect given where we are, uh, again, on the contagion curve. It's interesting to hear you talk about uh, the optimism geographically. Can you talk about it based on age? Are you seeing different attitudes based on how old people are? Yes, absolutely. So Gen Z is more optimistic than boomers. Uh, and Gen Z is the most optimistic. So generationally, there is a really notable difference. And interestingly, Gen Z actually is hardest hit in terms of household income. So again, there's this dichotomy between, you know, optimism about American America and the economy and actually Gen Z having quite a bit of impact to their household income more so than save boomers. And of course, we also see that for income. So as you'd expect, lower income households are less optimistic and they're feeling the burden of the household tax the most. It's interesting to talk about, but we talked about geography and we talked about um, different segments by age. But you also think about different categories of spending. I know that you've seen consumer spending decline across categories, maybe aside from groceries, right, or home entertainment. Yes. But as you think about getting a rebound in some of those categories, do you expect that certain categories rebound faster than others? Yeah, we do. And we can look to countries that are further ahead of us as one indication. So you're right. We've been measuring what we call net intent, which is on the whole, are Americans spending more or less, intending to spend more or less on you know, essential and non-essential categories, everything from groceries to international travel. So a large spectrum study. Uh, and what we're seeing is consistently groceries, household supplies, entertainment at home, which is most streaming. Those are all actually positive, right? People are still doing those things, needing those things. Had a depression in, you know, or negative intent to spend. Um, and in particular, the categories that continue to be hardest hit, kind of relatively speaking, are categories that are very heavily in person. So, you know, in person events, international travel, right? Uh, restaurants actually still show quite a negative impact on spend intent in the next two weeks. Um, and then discretionary categories are also still hard hit 
things like apparel, footwear, right, that the not need to have right now categories. You know, but as we look at how those numbers have changed, we're starting to see they're becoming less negative. So they're not positive yet. But for example, in apparel and footwear, over the last two weeks, there's been about a 10 percentage point improvement. So it's 10 percentage points less negative, which is good, okay? And you see a couple categories actually start to get towards the neutral zone, um, actually including some of the beauty categories that I mentioned in China. In the U.S., they're starting to get close to the kind of neutral intent categories. Mm-hmm. Your report also starts to talk about um, consumers anticipating long-term impacts on both their routines and their finances. Do you think that changes over time as we get to a different part of the curve? Or do you think some of these longer-term changes are you know, more permanent? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and one we're studying very deeply, I'd say there's a, a few trends and some of them might be things that will evolve and go away, kind of just here for now. And some of them, the question is, are these actually here to stay? So of course, number one is hesitation on in-person activities, right? So even in the early days of reopenings, you see, you know, there's very different expectations for what a store experience. Kelsey, I think I could ask you a thousand more questions, but I'm going to bring Josh back in for just a second and then I'm going to come back again. And Rich, we still want to bring you in. But but I think, Josh, we're asking you particularly about um, 9-11 and, and the comparisons people are making to these two uh, tragic events in our in our country's history and whether or not it's a fair analogy in terms of impact on on our psyches. Sure. Yeah, I mean, they both obviously have a, a strong degree of, of existential threat associated with them. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the best analogy, though. Uh, there are a number of really important differences between the events. Uh, so 9-11 involved uh, this discrete event that was really localized to a particular area. And the source of the threat um, was actually Actually relatively clear, even though people generalize uh, the sort of where that where that threat was coming from was was somewhat clear. None of those are really true factors associated with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So we have this invisible threat, it's everywhere. We don't know who has it. Um, and I think that creates such a different type of uncertainty and anxiety in, in, in people that are likely to see very different Uh, types of responses. Let me ask you one other question before we bring Rich in, and that is, you know, for years we've seen declining trust in institutions. And um, I'm curious what you think the impact of this virus will be. Is there any chance for optimism that maybe this turns around that trend as we all come together to try to fight this invisible enemy? Yeah, I mean, I think to the extent that people see it uh, as a collective effort, then certainly. Uh, It's definitely the case that if you look across societies, those, those societies that have experienced a higher degree of, of threat, whether it's from natural disasters or other types of violence, uh, they tend to have much stronger institutional and social norms, and those are effective for helping to keep people safe and to manage those threats. Um, and so to the extent that people are essentially lacking trust in those institutions, then that's going to create a lot of uh, difficulties. Now, with respect to this kind of a, a particular threat, like a disease-related threat, what we know is that actually it can draw people closer together with in their local communities and lead to increased trust on the part of people that you know or people that you have face-to-face contact with. And I think to the extent that people are actively conceptualizing or treating this, this, um, this crisis in terms of the collective effort to deal with that, then that's going to help uh, mitigate some of the, the, 
the problems that people have or the, um, the, the ways in which people negatively uh, trust those institutions. Okay, that again, you're just like, Kelsey, I could talk to you guys all day long. Um, you're probably happy that you you only signed up for a certain time-limited spot here, but you're both so interesting in bringing so much to this debate. Rich, I think that's a really good line to bring you in on as we think about 9-11, because you recently released a national survey uh, comparing travel and leisure attitudes after the after 9-11, after the Great Recession, and now after this pandemic. Can you tell us about the key takeaways? Is Rich on mute? Thanks, Suzanne, for having me here today. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So the thing I'd say is that compared to September 11th, we're seeing a more intense anxiety on the part of the public when it comes to things like travel and leisure. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, John Last, did a study in 2001 right after the attacks, and he asked people how uh, likely they were to travel on a trip of 500 or more miles in the next year. And half of the respondents in his survey, this is in late September 2001, half of them said that they were likely to do that. We asked about that on April 1st of this year, and that number was 35% as opposed to 50%. We asked about it again last week, and the good news is that the numbers are tracking up. It was at 40% last week. So, but we're at a lower point now than we were shortly after the September 11th attacks. So if you think about what that means for that particular segment, what are you seeing for other segments in terms of consumer sentiment? Well, we, we looked at a variety of different segments in this most recent back to normal barometer that we created. And we looked at airlines, hotels, cruises, casinos, movie theaters, uh, sporting events, and, uh, and theme parks. And what we uncovered is that, and so interestingly, is that one third of all the people in our study said that they would return to those activities right now without hesitation, which is very, very positive news. It means that uh, this is a strong pent up demand. People wanna be doing those things and uh, they're just raring to go as soon as they can. What interested me about it was you had those third, then you have a third who said they didn't wanna do anything until there was a vaccine. Talk about that middle third, You know, where does that leave the middle? Well, it's interesting. So. The people in who are there, there are people who are willing to go right now. There are people who are extremely hesitant and they need a vaccine. And as you say, there's a third who need other assurances. And so they're willing to take what you might consider to be non-medical assurances. And those include things like uh, assurance from the U.S. government that it's okay, uh, assurance from a leading medical expert that it's okay, uh, assurance when they visit a particular venue or particular store that they that they know that the employees there have been tested for COVID-19. So those are the things that would assure people. And each person obviously is motivated by a different set of things. Double down on that for a minute. So if you were talking to business owners what do you think they, is it signs? Is it, I mean, what do they have to do to reassure their customers, let alone their employees, but their customers that it's okay to come back? So there are four things that we identified that are critically important for businesses to do. One, they need to have hand sanitizer visible at a station in the store or in the venue. The second thing is you need employees who are visibly cleaning when customers are around. The third thing is that you need to have a set of protocols that you're following, and they can come from whatever official source you wanna choose, but it has to sound official and be convincing to people. And those protocols need to be posted. The fourth thing is something else that needs to be posted, and that is some sort of certificate from a local health official saying that the property has followed sanit sanitation, uh, uh, sanitization guidelines to ensure that the property is safe. And if you do those four things, the hand sanitizer, the uh, the cleaning, the uh, protocols, 
and a certificate showing that you're following sanitization protocols, you're generally doing okay. That really jives with what we heard from Josh a few minutes ago, I think. But let me ask you a question I asked Kelsey, which is when you look at the report, when you look at the survey results, what were the bright spots? Where was their optimistic news? Well, I think the optimism comes from, again, the one-third who are willing to return right now. And we saw some sectors that there was a, an incredible pent-up demand. Suzanne, one of the things we found in our second survey that we did last week, which was the most startling by far, was that among people who have taken a cruise in the last year, more than half are willing to go right back to a cruise now. Now, we're hearing about cruise ships being uh, floating Petri dishes, and large numbers of people would not go back, but the loyalty of people in that particular sector is so intense that they would go back right now. More than half would go back right now without hesitation. And I guess if you're stuck in your house and the idea of being on a cruise sounds really enticing, you'd go and do it. And you probably would think, you know what, with all the scrutiny going on right now of the sector, they're probably doubling down within the cruise ship industry to make sure that those ships would be particularly safe if people returned there. When you think about returning to work, returning to a more, you know, what we consider to be a normal environment, when do you imagine that we are back? to normal? I know when you think about consumer activity and demand and kind of way of life, when do you imagine that we're there? Well, I would say we really are not going to be there formally until there's a vaccine. And the, the survey data made that very, very clear. That was the one assurance that people need more than anything else if they're hesitant to return to any of the activities that we looked at. So the vaccine is going to make all the difference in terms of convincing people. Short of that, there's going to be people who are hesitant for one degree, for one reason or another. We're getting a question from the audience about uh, children and getting back to school, daycare, youth groups, etc. Um, we hear a lot at the chamber about employers and employees being worried about though that group of essential services starting back up before they feel comfortable obviously returning to work. So was there anything that you have found or could read between lines in your work that talks about when people will feel safe dropping their kids at school or daycare or camp again? Well, the thing that we found was that, and, and it ties specifically back to the issue of, of travel and leisure, is that parents who are doing things voluntarily, like taking a trip, for example, are concerned about the hassle of associated with doing special things that would require their kids to be involved and that might create anxiety or uh, frustration on the part of the kids. For example, if you have a five-year-old, you're thinking of taking that kid to a theme park. If the child has to wear a mask the entire time they're there and it's 90 degrees outside and the kid's going to give you a hard time, you might not go. Whereas business travelers who have to travel because it's part of doing their job are much more likely to endure the things that they're gonna be subjected to, the temperature checks and the nasal swabbing and all that other stuff. So that's where the difference comes in. If it's voluntary, there's gonna be, I think, a, more of a hesitancy and reluctance to do things. Um, if it's mandatory, people have to do it for their jobs, they're likely to endure some of the more unpleasant aspects of that. This is, this is another question. Um, I'm gonna start with you, but I might ask some of the other panelists to leap in as well. If you think about how um, loyal and kind of emotional people have been about supporting their local businesses in this time, uh, do you imagine that that, as you think about consumer actions and consumer attitudes, that any of that buy local stays strong as we return to normal? I think it will. And the other thing I'd say also, as we looked at the retail sector as, as part of the second wave of research, 
And what we found is that people are much more likely to return to retail stores than they are to any of the travel-related uh, sectors that we looked at. So for example, we had about one-third, as I told you, who are willing to re-engage right now on flying, hotels, and so forth. But we have more than 60% who are willing right now to go to retail stores. And among the people who are hesitant to go back, 80% will return within three months. So there's a much more greater willingness to engage in retail generally. And I think that's a positive note for the retail sector. I think that's really interesting. Josh, let me turn to you for a second for another audience question, which is, could you address the cross-section between fears surrounding contracting the virus, but also the desire to be with people again in traditional social settings and, and how people will balance those two emotions? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, not one that there's a great answer to, honestly. And the reason is uh, in work that in research that's been done on this topic, it turns out that how people psychologically respond to disease related threats is in direct opposition to their motivations to engage socially with other people. So finding that balance can actually be really tricky. Um, what I think will tend to happen is that when people have been cooped up for quite a, quite a while, there's gonna be this pretty strong uh, motivation to go uh, uh, connect with others, be around other people and so forth. Um, and uh, what we do know is that, uh, like I was saying earlier with respect to local communities, people tend to, when they're concerned about these kinds of threats, they tend to feel a little bit closer to and they trust more people that they know uh, and people who are in those local communities. And so I think you will see increased rates of people wanting to engage um, with others. It could be they might be taking steps like preferring to eat outdoors at restaurants and, and, and so forth, where they're still taking some steps to protect themselves. But I think you're likely to see a, you know, a relatively high level of engagement there. Whether or not that's a good thing, I think depends upon what the steps are that the businesses are taking to sort of mitigate those risks, as Rich was saying. A question from the audience that I read, and then I want to elaborate on a little bit. This says, what behaviors should patrons expect from other patrons? Is it masks? Is it maintaining six feet distance? And, and then that's the question from the audience and what I want to elaborate on is what does that do to your psyche you know when you're in the grocery store and someone's not using the going up the runway places the right way or they're not wearing a mask I mean it feels to me that people when they're feeling insecure about an, an, an unseen virus like this that they get to angry really fast um, the fear turns into anger really fast but of course I don't have your expertise so Two questions, what should we expect from each other in civil society, but also what happens when that breaks down or people don't meet the expectations of their fellow citizens? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think, I mean, just on the face of it, what we should expect is that people should follow the recommendations of whatever is going to be most effective, maybe from public health officials, right? But that's easy to say. Um, what, what happens when people don't uh, do that, you're, as, you're, you're totally right. People can very much respond with this uh, type of anger because I think what it suggests is people are really searching in this kind of a situation where there's so much uncertainty. They're searching for any kind of behavior that's going to make them feel more in control of the situation. And uh, following these kinds of norms within a business is one way of doing that. And it suggests that if people are actively engaging in following those norms, it suggests that the business itself is running effectively and doing what it can to 
maintain the safety and the health of its of, uh, its customers. And so if people are not following those norms, they can create this kind of anger towards those individuals, obviously, and it might also create anger towards the larger business as well. Um, so I, I think that from the, the, the business's side of, uh, of things, I think we, we should expect that it would be very helpful for the consumer mindset to really do some active management of these kinds of, uh, of behaviors. And that that's true almost regardless of how effective they truly are. It's really about essentially making the, the individuals feel more safe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting when you start to think about enforcement. You know, am I expecting the grocery store or restaurant I'm in to enforce behavior on the part of other patrons that they're also trying to retain their loyalty? I think it's going to be a really interesting time. I thought... Rich, you spoke to some of this when you spoke to what are the four things a business could do to create a sense of well-being and, and reduce anxiety among their customers. We have a question from the audience saying, is it feasible that kind of these overburdened um, health agencies would be able to issue some type of certificate? So number one, how likely do you think it is that, that the government will be able to do that and do it fast enough? Uh, and if they couldn't, is there a substitute for that kind of good housekeeping seal of approval? That's a great question, Suzanne. Uh, I would imagine, I would hope that at least the largest venues could get that type of certification in place. The thing I would say also, and something just on the point what Josh just talked about, one of the things I would advise small businesses, mid-sized businesses to focus on is following the Goldilocks principle when it comes to their customers. What I mean by that is that if you do too little, it shows that you don't care about people's health. If you do too much, it might scare people and, and cause them to wonder, do I even belong in this store or in this place of business? Because it might be too risky if they're taking so many precautions and they're so in your face about it. So that's a big concern I, I have is that some businesses might go overboard in their zeal to do things that are unnecessary and also expensive and cost them money that they don't have. I'm curious, Josh, as you hear those four things a business could do, does that ring true? I mean, it sounded to me to um, speak directly to some of the concerns that you raised earlier. Yeah, I think they do. I mean, some of those uh, ideas target the direct uh, perceptions and concerns that people have around the spread of disease, right? So the idea of actively seeing people cleaning. Um, we know that we have some sense anyway that uh, viruses are spread through contact and through um, signs of dirty environments. And so showing uh, that people are engaging in use of protective um, equipment and cleaning, those are the sort of direct uh, behaviors that would help to alleviate people's anxieties. And then just from a larger perspective on what we know to be influential from social psychology, uh, signs of authority um, can be quite effective. So having that certificate that suggests that there is not just that the business itself is saying they're engaging in these behaviors, but some outside, presumably more objective institution has, has certified that uh, organization gives people a sense uh, that there uh, that there's some justification and um, credibility to that behavior. I think that's really interesting. Rich, that kind of relates to a question for you around where do you think the most pent-up demand is? So I, I was thinking about that question, Suzanne, because there are a couple of ways to answer it. One is by sector and the other is by demographics. Mm -hmm. I'm going to answer it by demographics, if that's okay. So we looked at the cross tabs and a lot of this data to see who is most feeling pent up? And it skews pronouncedly male, pronouncedly young middle-aged, 35 to 44. And it also skews, interestingly, ideologically. Very liberal people and very conservative people are the ones who are 
most likely to want to do things right now. They're ready to go now. So it's it's very interesting. And more hesitancy naturally among women as composed to the men. And I think just as we as businesses, this is such an important point for businesses. If you know where the pent up demand is right now and you have the ability to target it all, focus on where that that demand is demographically, also psychographically. It's also important to know who are the people who with just the most minimal assurances would return and do the things that would cause them to return and then target those people having done those things that assure. And then there's a certain segment of people who are just gonna be very slow to re-engage. I think they generally skew toward the elderly who are fearful, most fearful about their health. And if you're able to focus on other segments that are more likely to engage sooner, do that. I think that's really interesting advice, and it kind of matches some of what Kelsey was talking about that they're finding in their research about who's coming back first and in what order. And I think that's that's really helpful to our listeners, I think. Uh, Josh, let me ask you a question that's it, it, a little bit unfair of me to ask a scientist and an, an academic to, to um, guess something. But based on your knowledge of humans, I'm curious what you think about the next generation of risk takers and entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs. And I think something we think about a lot at the chamber is how important job creators are and how important innovators are. And you worry a little bit that as people are graduating from college right now or entering college right now, is it possible that something even relatively short-lived in their lifespan could impact them in terms of being less risk adverse in their careers later? Yeah, I think that's a, uh, it is a very interesting question. Um, I think that I'm going to try not to guess. I'm going to try to actually <laughs> say something involving <laughs> data. We'll see. We'll see if this works. <laughs> so it turns out there actually are some data looking across history suggesting that um, the data that I'm aware of has to do with CEO behavior, but I think it applies more broadly than that. And so CEOs that that um, take their job during economic downturns tend to be less risk-taking than uh, CEOs that don't. And I think what that suggests is that there is this kind of, um, and that, that lasts throughout their, their tenure, and it's not just during the economic downturn. And I think that suggests there's some learning that's happening during uh, whatever that period of time is. Um, and we might see the same kind of an effect uh, given the the time frame that this, this, this uh, crisis happens across, such that people who are um, just learning about how to engage with the various um, disciplines or, or uh, economic activities that they're getting involved with, whether it's college students or, or what have you, um, they very well could learn certain patterns of behavior that they carry forward with them in terms of that could be less risk-taking. Um, I, I mean, just looking at the college students that I teach, there um, there tends to be a very high degree of demotivation that's associated with what's going on right now. And I don't know if that's the same as risk-taking, but it suggests um, that people are finding it very, very difficult to focus and to really care that much about the things that they're doing. And I do worry that that could persist uh, over time, even at just some at some level. Well, listen, I think that you all three brought so much to this conversation. We're concerned about um, the health and safety of employees and customers and our families and communities everywhere. Um, but we're also concerned about the intersection of economic security and health. 
You know, we know what a job means to a community. We know what a job means to health outcomes. And so we know that we want to return to work only when it's safe to do that. But we do want to be preparing now and helping business owners as much as we can weather this storm so that there are jobs on the other end and we don't have a further decline of public health because the economic crisis is elongated. So I've appreciated your moments of optimism and your helpful tips for business owners in weathering this storm and in how to help their employees and customers feel safe as they go back. Uh, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. For our watchers and listeners, thank you too for your time. Your feedback on these programs has been really, really helpful. So anything that you're willing to share with us, you can email to foundation at uschamber.com. If you've missed other pieces of this series or missed part of today's program, you can catch it again at our website, uschamberfoundation.org. And uh, I really I really like Josh's point in the beginning about clarity being our friend in this situation. And I think all three of our panelists uh, helped add to the clearer picture we have of both the economy and how people will behave. So thank you all very much and hope to see you again soon. Thank you.